All right, so uh, this morning we are continuing our series in 1 Peter um, entitled Living Hope. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. And for those of you who have been following along in this series, we actually only have two messages left. And so today I preach, and then I finish the series Next week. And one of the things I want you guys to keep in mind is that next week we are going to be concluding the series by looking at spiritual warfare. All right. And so it's going to be really, really important for you to be here and be praying for me as well because the enemy's real and he's going to be coming after me as a result of the subject I will be addressing. And so make sure to be here next week um, because if you have your pulse, have a pulse, the enemy's attacking you. And if the enemy's attacking you, we need to talk about spiritual warfare. Amen. So our passage uh, uh, is, like I said, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. If you are there, say amen. amen. All right. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be here with you guys. All right. Here's what it says. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, uh, we are going to be addressing the subject of humility, of humility. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at humility under three headings, okay? So we're going to look at the call to humility. And after we look at the call, we're going to look at the benefits of humility. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the motivation for humility, all right? So the call to it, the benefits of it, and the motivation for it. So let's begin with the first truth, which is the call to humility. Look what it says in the second half of verse 5. He says, all of you, and all of you means all of us, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So the first truth that we see here in this passage is Peter is calling us to something. And what he is calling us to, according to verse 5, the second half of verse 5, is he is calling us to humility. He's calling us towards humility. Now, before I unpack the verse, I want to give you a definition on what humility is. And the reason why I want to define it is because I need you to know exactly what I mean when I use the word humility. Because the reality is, a lot of us, the definition that we have, we think it's biblical, but actually many of us have a worldly definition of humility, all right? So I'm going to give you the, the biblical one so that we can all be on the same page. The word humility there in, in the passage in verse 5, here's what the word literally means. It means to be made low, to be low not just in status but spatially as well. So, it's, so to, be, to, be, to be humble, it means to be low relationally and also in status, Okay? That's what the word humility there means. It could also mean to be someone who is lowly of mind, to be lowly of mind. That's what humility means. That's what the Greek word actually means, right? But I want to give you a couple other definitions that I came across this week. Um, And one of them comes from this book. So I read two books on humility this week. I, I, I kind of recommend one, but I really recommend the other. So the one I kind of recommend is one written by C.J. Mahaney. It's called Humility. And uh, the, the book is, is, is well-written. It's okay. It's okay, right? It's a decent reading book. Right? You, if you want to read it, go ahead. The one book that I recommend, though, that I really recommend 
is written by a dead white guy who was a South African missionary. And this guy, he wrote this book maybe at the end of the 1800s. And it's, it's a little bit old English, but it's a very well-written book, also called Humility. And the name, the author is named Andrew Murray. So that book was awesome. Even though it was significantly shorter than the Mahaney book, it was significantly better than the Mahaney book too, okay? So if you want to read on the subject of humility, those are the books you need to read. And if you don't think you need to read on them, then you probably should read it because you're prideful. Okay, so, so, so check your heart. Okay, so all right. So that's the, the those are two. So, so one of the definitions I'm going to give you uh, comes from the Mahaney book. Look how he defines it. This is so good. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's what humility is. Biblical humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness on the one hand and our sinfulness on the other hand. That's what biblical humility is. Now, this is why this is so important, because when you go to a secular counselor and you need help for anything, here's what a secular counselor always tells you. Not maybe, not sometimes, but all the time. No matter how they get to it, essentially the message is this. The message is, your problem is outward and your solution is inward. That's what a secular counselor will always tell you. Oh, the reason why you're struggling with that is because of your parents. Oh, the reason why you're struggling with that is because of your boss. The reason why you're struggling with that is because of your, your coworkers or, or your neighbors. It's, it has nothing to do with you. The problem is always out there, and the solution is always in here. How do you deal with those people? You got to believe in yourself, and you got to have self-esteem. And you got to turn into your, 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 inner, your inner worker, and you, you will fix it. It's like your counseling is always the same. The problem's out there, and the solution's in here. But according to the Bible, biblical humility is the exact opposite. In order for you to be humble, the, the, so the problem is always in here, and the solution is always out there. If I'm going to be a humble person, I need to be aware of God's holiness on the one hand and my sinfulness on the other. Now, listen to this. This is an even better definition from Charles Spurgeon. Look how Spurgeon puts this. He says, humility is the proper estimate of oneself. You see, a lot of times when we think of humility, we think of like, when we think of becoming humble, we're like, okay, well, I'm not, I don't really need to be humble, but I'm going to do it just for the sake of, you know, of, of honoring God. No, no, no. Humility is actually having a proper estimate of yourself. You, you, you grow humble when you start having an accurate view of yourself. So in other words, if you're prideful, the reason why you're prideful is because you have a skewed, inaccurate view of yourself. The more you understand who you actually are, the more humble you become. That's what this passage is telling us, okay? So this is why this is so important. C.S. Lewis, who's my favorite author, anything he reads, he writes, he wrote, I read, and he says something in his book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter on pride. And I'm telling you, it took everything in me not to just read that chapter because like to you guys, like just get up and read the chapter because it's such a good chapter on pride and humility. And at the end of his book, at the end of that chapter on pride, C.S. Lewis says something really interesting. He, he does this awesome job of just unpacking what pride actually is. And then he concludes, and some of you have heard me talk about this, he concludes by telling us that there are actually two forms of pride. There are two forms of pride. Here's how he defines pride. He says, all pride is, pride is the worship of self. That's all pride is. It is the worship of self. Since that's the definition of pride, then here's what that means. There's actually two forms of pride. The first form of pride is the type of pride that we usually think of when we think of someone who's prideful, right? When you think of someone who's prideful, you think of someone who thinks they're better than everybody, right? 
So, so, the, so the, that's the first form of pride, which is the superiority form of pride. The second form of pride, Lewis says, is the inferiority form of pride. So the superiority form of pride is the pride that we tend to think of when we think of pride. And that's the person who, whenever they do the math, they, 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 they compare themselves with someone. By and large, they, the, the math comes out in their favor, and they're better than people at everything. They're better. They're more creative. They're smarter. They work harder. You know, they're, they're just better than everybody. That's the superiority form of pride. It's the type of pride that we think of when we think of pride. But what Lewis says is that if pride is the worship of self, then that means there's another form of pride, and that's the inferiority form of pride. And the inferiority form of pride are the people who are always comparing themselves, but instead of the math coming out in their favor, the math always comes out not in their favor, right? And so these are the people that when you meet them, they're always complaining about what they don't have. And man, why don't I have a marriage like that? And why don't I have kids like that? And why don't I have a job like that? And why am I still single? And why don't I get a promotion? And it's all about them. See, on the surface, that person looks like they're very humble. But the reason why they're not is because they're only worshiping one thing. They're worshiping themselves just as much as the other group is. It's all about them. And so these are the people who, when they're on Facebook, every single post they read relates back to them. So if someone gets a promotion, why don't I get a promotion? If someone got engaged, why don't I get engaged? If someone else has grandkids, why don't I have grandkids? That's the inferiority form of pride. And the reality is, is that there's a lot more people in the church that struggle with that form of pride than the other one. Because the other one is obvious, so people kind of avoid that one. No one wants that one. But we're all guilty of the other one. And if I'm honest, in my own life, I kind of swing from one extreme to the other. When I find myself doing too much of the inferiority, for, the, the, the superiority form, what I do is instead of swinging back to the balance, which is biblical humility, I swing to the other extreme and I have the inferiority form. Oh, I feel like I'm too good, so let me uh, tell myself that I'm not good. So I just keep swinging from one extreme to the other. That's what most Christians do. They swing from one form of pride to the other form of pride. And so here's what Lewis says. What Lewis argues is that True humility is this. True humility is not to think more of yourself. True humility is not to think less of yourself. True humility is to think of yourself less. Can I, I'm going to say that again, okay? Some, someone missed that. So, so he says, true humility is not to think more of yourself. That's the superiority form of pride. Is not to think less of yourself. That's the inferiority form of pride. Inferiority form of pride. True humility is to think of yourself less. You are growing in humility when you're no longer thinking about yourself. So the best way to describe humility is self-forgetfulness. So, so what we, but the thing is, what we do, when we think of someone humble, we think of someone who's like, oh, I'm not good at anything. Oh, I'm so bad at that, and I'm so bad at this, and I'm not good. That's not humility. That's the inferiority form of pride. Lewis says that you know you've been in the presence of an actual humble person when you spend two hours with them, and the whole two hours were about you, not them. That's how you know you've been in the presence of a humble person. They don't think less of themselves. They think of, the sel- of themselves less. So they can be with you for a long time, and the conversation has nothing to do with them because they can be focused on you because they're humble. See? Actually, this is one of the ways I can tell where people are spiritually. If, if, I, if I get lunch with someone or I get coffee with someone or I spend an, an extended amount of time with someone and the whole conversation is about them, there's a good chance they're still struggling with pride. Now, I know that I get that more than most because I'm a pastor, so people come to me about their problems, but that's one of the things I've noticed. 
Actually, if you, if you see your own relationships, almost always the leader in any, in any relationship is the person who does the most question asking and the most encouraging. That's why almost always children never ask you how you're doing. Like your kids never come up to you, hey, mom and dad, how are you doing? They don't care. <laughs> children are only worried about themselves. And so as a parent, your job is to ask them and encourage them and motivate them. The humble person in the equation is the parent, not the child. Children are super self-centered. So actually, I read this in a leadership book. He said, one of the ways you can tell who the leader is in a relationship is who asks the most questions and who gives the most encouragement. Humility is a mark of leadership. And if you're growing in humility, you don't think less of yourself. You don't think more of yourself. You think of yourself less. You think of yourself less. Now, if you go back to the verse, I want, I want to show you guys something here. This is, this is really interesting. As, as we talk about this call to humility, in order to understand the call, you got to pay attention to the last part of what he says. Because he says, all of you, right, clothe yourselves. Now, now the phrase there, clothe yourselves, here, here's what it means there to, to clothe yourself. Um, it means to literally put on an outfit, okay? And, and, and what it implies, this is something that was fascinating to me. It means to take a characteristic that is not true of you and to make it essential, an essential part of you. Not just a, 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 a peripheral part of you, but to make a characteristic an essential part of you, okay? And actually, the word picture that's used is, is the image that, that, that Peter is getting at. This is actually that word clothe. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word is used in Greek, okay? And, and here's the picture he wants you to have. The word there, clothed, the word picture that Peter wants you to have is of a slave who takes away their outer garment and puts on the apron of a slave to serve other people. And Jesus actually does it in John chapter 13. In John 13, Jesus takes off his outer garments, he puts on his slave apron, and he washes the feet of his disciples. That's what this word is getting at when it tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. Here's the other thing. The word there, clothed, it's not optional. When he tells us to clothe ourselves, it's, in the, it's, a, it's an imperative. In other words, he is commanding this, okay? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying, hey, hey, if you have time, humble yourself. No, no, no. He's commanding you to because it's an imperative in the Greek. The other thing that's interesting about the word there, clothe, is that it's in the middle voice. The middle voice in Greek is important because what it implies is that you are to do the action to yourself. In other words, even though it's a command, God is allowing you to be the one that does it. He's commanding you to do it, but the, th the decision has to be made by you. It's in the middle voice, so the action has to be done from you to yourself. In other words, humility doesn't happen by accident. It's something you have to intentionally choose day in, day out. That's why that word there, clothe, is so important. See, when we think of humility, we always think of humility as this passive virtue that we get to just over time. No, no, no. Humility actually takes work. It takes work to become humble. No one gets humble by accident. That's why you have people who are in their 50s and 60s and have been walking with Jesus for 30 years and are just as prideful as they were at 60 as they were at 20. Because walking with Jesus doesn't do it. It's intentionally pursuing humility that makes you humble. It takes effort. It takes effort. So the other thing I want you to see in this verse as we talk about this, this call to humility, if, if I was writing this verse, this is just me, but if I was writing this verse, I would put all of you Clothe yourselves with humility, comma, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I would stop it right after the word humility. But, he, but Peter doesn't stop there. He intentionally adds the phrase toward one another. Now, the reason why that's so important is because here's what this means. When you and I pursue humility, the litmus test to your humility is not your relationship with God, is your relationship with other people. 
Okay? I'm going to read a verse to you. I mean, uh, 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 this is a, a quote from Andrew Murray, which is one of the books I mentioned. And look what he says about humility in light of other people. He says, it is in our relation to one another, in our treatment of one another, that the true lowliness of mind and the heart of humility are to be seen. Humility before God, listen to this, is nothing if not proved in humility before men. It's actually what John gets at. We went through First John you know, a few months ago. John actually gets at that too. He says, listen, you can claim to love God all you want. But the way you reveal your love to God is by your love for other people. The same thing is true of humility. It's really easy to be humble when you're with your prayer journal by yourself. Anybody can be humble when no one's around. But humility gets a lot harder when your spouse wakes up and when your children wake up and when your boss shows up. That's when humility gets difficult because anybody can be humble when you're by yourself. But, but you see it in the context of your relationships. That's where you see if you're actually growing in humility or not. That's just the way God's built it. You will find if you're humble, find out if you're humble in your relationships. And here's what's interesting. I have found that true in my own life, right? Like there's no one, there's nothing that humbles me more than other people. There are certain things that I think are true of me. And then when I get in the presence of other people, I realize they are no longer true of me. So for example, last weekend, Lily and I were in Chicago and we went to Chicago for her birthday. We, were, we stayed in the city for two nights. And one of the things that humbled me was I, I, I love shopping. Like, I love clothes. I love getting new outfits. I'm just like a girl with that. Like, I'm just, I, just, I, I, I could be at the mall for like 17 hours straight. And it's how I cope. But anyway, so, uh, and 7-Eleven too, if you guys remember. But, uh, but anyways, uh, so that's just how I am. That's just how I, I'm wired, right? I just, I love fashion. I love, you know, getting new stuff. But here's the thing. One of the things that humbled me, though, when I was in the city is that I am no longer a cool dresser anymore. Because we were in the city, and we were in the part of the city where all the hipsters were, and we were walking around, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, all my outfits are from, like, 2005. Like, what happened to me? Like, I felt so old. Like, their jeans were tighter, like, their clothes were brighter, and, like, it's like everything was so different. I'm like, what happened to me? And I just don't know. Like, it was, it was a moment of crisis, if I'm honest. Like, it was, it was very difficult for me to come... Those logos that I didn't recognize, and then me being like the creepy older guy, I'm like, hey, what logo was that? And then they're like, oh, it's this. And I'm like, oh, I knew that. <laughs> I have no idea what logo that is, you know? Nothing humbles you quicker than other people. Just the other on Friday, uh, we, were, we were watching Lily. One of Lily's best friends here at church is Melissa Duncan, and her and her husband come to our church. And um, uh, they have, she has a daughter, uh, her youngest daughter, Maya, is two years old, and so is our daughter, our youngest daughter, so they're really close friends. So on Friday, she had something to do, and she asked Lily, hey, can you, can you guys watch Maya um, while I do whatever I got to do? And Lily was like, yeah, no problem. So then, I don't know how I got stuck being the chauffeur, but I became the chauffeur on Friday. Instead of working on my sermon, I'm driving two-year-olds around, right? And so I go pick her up. I was supposed to drop Leah off at preschool at Wheaton Bible Church, and then I was to pick up Maya and bring her back. So, so on the way back, it's me and a two-year-old in the back, and I'm trying to, like, start small talk with her. Like, I don't know. What would you talk to a two-year-old about? And I'm like, hey, what are your thoughts on the economy? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even, like, I don't even know what to say. And so, so, so we're driving, and I'm trying to talk to her, and you can just tell she's not having it. Like, she's like, oh, my gosh, yeah, okay, shut up, right? So then halfway through the trip, she notices next to her that Leah had left like this little play phone. So she picks up Leah's play phone and she starts talking into it. And she's so excited to see my daughter, Alicia, uh, that she actually starts talking to Alicia like fake, you know, on the phone. 
And she's like, hi, cha-cha, are you there? Hi, blah, blah, And then all of a sudden she says, yeah, uh, I'm sitting here with your daddy, and I'd much rather be talking to you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Just shut up and drive. Keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> so when a two-year-old doesn't want to talk to you, like when you can't engage a two-year-old, that's humbling, man. Like nothing humbles you more than a toddler that is not interested in you. Like, like you can't keep them captivated with your, with your conversation, you know? And that's what people do. People reveal your People either make you humble or they reveal your lack of humility. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that I've been praying for this week as I've been praying for you guys in light of this message is a few, a few weeks ago when we were discussing the subject of holiness, I went into that, sub, into that passage understanding holiness or so I thought, but the more I read, the more I struggled with it, the more I wrestled with it, I was shocked with just how much holiness affects every single day of our lives. And actually, this passage on humility has been the same exact way. You know, humility to me was always one of those things where like, yeah, it's something I should be pursuing. But it wasn't like on the forefront of my mind. And what most shocked me this week was just how practical humility is. Think about it. If humility, remember we said, if humility is not to think less of yourself or to think more of yourself, but it means to think of yourself less, think about how that would change your marriage. Think about if, if, if when your husband got home, you weren't thinking about yourself more or less. You weren't even thinking about yourself at all, and you were focused on encouraging and serving him. And your husband, same thing. When you get home, how different would your marriage be if you walked in not thinking about you but thinking about the people in the house? Same thing with singles. The same thing with, think about how it would be at your job. If when you went into your job, you weren't worried about how you looked, you weren't worried about getting a raise, you weren't worried about you know, competing with other people, but you were there to serve others and glorify God. Humility changes everything. And back to the people with the inferiority form of pride, the people who everything that goes on connects back to them and everything is woe is me. Think about what your engagement with social media would be like if whenever you scroll down the page, you would actually be grateful for what God is doing in other people's lives. You can praise God for what he's doing here and praise God for what he's doing over there and not constantly having to connect everything back to you. Humility, if you really have humility, humility changes everything. And that's been my prayer. This whole week as I've been preparing, my prayer is that our church will become a humble church. That when people walk in here, they wouldn't find people who are so focused on themselves that when people walk in, they would feel loved and accepted and like they're the center of attention. Because we're so focused outwardly, God's given us everything we needed inwardly so we can focus on others outwardly. That's my prayer for our church in general and for you in particular. Okay? So the first thing that we are called to is we are called to humility. That's the first truth, the call to humility. The second truth I want to see this morning is I want to take a look at, he gives us the benefits of humility, the benefits of humility. And according to Peter, there are three benefits that come from being a humble person. There are three benefits. I'm going to read them to you, and it comes from the, the last part of verse 5 onward. Look what he says after the comma. He says, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So according to Peter, there are three benefits that you can get when you are a humble person. There are three benefits that we receive when we are fleeing pride and pursuing humility. The first benefit is something God gives. God gives. The second benefit is something God does. And the third benefit is something God takes. Okay? 
So those are three benefits. Something God gives, something God does, and something God takes. So let's begin with the first benefit. The first benefit of being a truly humble person is that when you're humble, there is something God gives. And look, look at where I get this from. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So, so imagine if before this morning, let's say I, I, before you got in here today, I ran into you in the hallway and I said, hey, hey, what if I gave you something that you can do every day that by you doing, you would be put in a better position to receive God's grace, God's favor, and God's kindness? You would be like, yeah, t- what, what, what is it? I would love to get more of God's favor, God's grace, and God's kindness. Like, tell me what that is because I would love to experience whatever it is that you're, t- you're, you're telling me. Well, according to the passage, the thing that places you in the best position to receive God's grace, God's kindness, and God's favor is humility. It's humility. So, 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 so the first benefit of humility is that when you are humble, there is something God gives you. And what he gives you is favor. Now, here's the thing. Here's, this is really important. When, when you look at this concept of, 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 of humility, right, and we talk about how one of the things that God gives us is favor, look what he does to the proud, though. This is, this is if, the, if, the, if the second part is encouraging, the first part is terrifying. Because the word there says God opposes. The word there, oppose, is a military term. And it literally means to battle against someone. It means to put an army in battle formation and to attack someone. Okay? And here's what's crazy. Here's what's scary, actually, if you think about it. The word opposes and the word shows, they are both in the present tense. So here's what this means. When you are proud, the present tense means that God is continually battling you. So he doesn't do it once and then backs off. No, no. Every time you are proud, God is there battling you. And every time you are humble, God is there favoring you. That's what the present tense means, that it's happening again and again and again and again. So every time you're proud, God battles against you. And every time you're humble, God shows you favor. I don't know about you, but if, if you were to tell me, hey, there's an enemy who is, who is battling, who is setting up formation in front of you, that's already scary enough it is. But if I find out that the person is God, Look, life is hard enough. The last thing I need is God battling me, resisting me, and attacking me. But if you're proud, that's the promise. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. Look at, look at this passage um, from Isaiah 66. It says, these are the ones, this is God talking, these are the ones I look on with favor. Now, now pause there for a second. I don't know about you, but if I'm taking notes and I were to find that verse these are the ones that I look on with favor. I would want to know who are the ones he's talking about because I want to be in that group. Whoever that person is, that group is, I want to be in that group because I want God to look at me with favor. Well, he tells us, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So, so when God looks out into the world, the only people that impress him, the only people that catch his eye, the only people that get his favor are the humble people. And that's why in Psalm 51, when David has, has sinned against Bathsheba and against God, he says, he says, um, create in me a, 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 a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's the only sacrifice God will accept, a broken and contrite heart. Not only will he not despise it, he favors it. Those are promises, guys. Those are promises that are made to us. God opposes the proud. And you know why I think, there's a few reasons why I think God opposes the proud. 
The first reason why I think God opposes the proud is because proud people only trust in themselves. See, trust, you can only have so much trust. You, can't, you don't have unlimited trust. You have 100% of trust. So if 50% of the trust is in you, that means that only 50% of the trust can be in God, right? And so the reason why God opposes the proud is because if you trust in yourself, you can't trust in the Lord. The other reason why God opposes the proud is because not only do pride, prideful people trust in themselves, but prideful people do everything for their glory, Right? So if you're doing something for your glory, then by default, you're not doing something for God's glory. And that's why John the Baptist says, I must decrease that you might increase. So God opposes you if you're proud because you're doing it, you're trusting in yourself, and you're doing it for your glory. Look at this, look at this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Look what he says. He says, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. But I can flip that. Nothing sets a person so much out of God's reach than pride. And a lot of us, we're nowhere near God's reach. We're on the complete opposite side of the battlefield because we are prideful human beings. We're too busy worshiping ourselves, and so we have no time, space, or energy to worship God. That's what this passage is getting at. Now, if you can go back to, uh, I want to say one more thing before I move on to the second benefit. So he says there, he says there, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You know, I heard a, a pastor this week say something really interesting. He said, a big reason why God opposes the proud is because pride is cosmic plagiarism. You guys know what plagiarism is, right? P plagiarism is when you take credit for something that you haven't done. So let's say you're sitting here today and you're taking credit for the job you have or you're taking credit for the gifts you have or you're taking credit for the freedom you have or you're taking credit for the gifts you've been given. Well, here's the problem with that. And here's why what you're doing is cosmic plagiarism. Because you had no choice on who, who you were born to. Your family of origin wasn't decided by you. It was decided by God. You had no choice over what country you were born in. You had no choice over what gender you are. You had no choice over what race you are. You have no choice over what century you were born in. You could have been born during the bubonic plague and have been died by se dead by seven. One of, you know, even your health, the fact that you are breathing, the fact that you are healthy. You know that Pastor Lon, who was here last week preaching to us on suffering, you know that Lon is the healthiest 65-year-old I've ever met? Like nobody works out or eats better than Lon. And Lon has terminal cancer. You know why? Because health is given by God. He did nothing to gain that. He did nothing to do that. Nothing, that, was not, that was not his fault. And so if you're here and you are prideful about even a little part of your life, it's cosmic plagiarism. You're taking credit for something that God gave you. You have no right. I have no right. And that's why God opposes the proud. And look what it says in 1 Corinthians 4. Look at, look at this. Look what, look what Paul asks the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Great question, right? Nothing. Everything I have has been given to me. And if, you did, if you, and, if you did, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? There's no reason to boast. There's absolutely no reason to be prideful, according to this passage. Okay? So, the first benefit of being humble is there's something God gives. God gives you favor and grace. The second benefit of being humble is there's something God does. Look what it says in verse six. He says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up 
in due time. So according to this passage, the second benefit to humility is something God does. And what God does is he lifts you up in due time. Now, out of all the promises that are made in this passage, this was the one that most caught me off guard. And you know why it caught me off guard? Because it's the most unnecessary one of all of them. It's, it's like grace upon grace. God's already shown us grace, but this is like something extra that he didn't have to do. You see, because God can just say, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And that's it. That's all he had to say. But he adds the benefit of, if you humble yourself, I will lift you up in due time. That's just unnecessary grace. There's no reason for God to say that. There's no reason for God to give us that benefit. There's no reason whatsoever because we don't deserve it. And all, he could literally just say, humble yourself because I'm God. But one of the benefits that just blew my mind is that when you humble yourself before the Lord, the promise he makes is that he will lift you up in due time. And the word there, to lift up, it means to be elevated. It means to be exalted, okay? Now, here's this is really important. The word humility, I didn't give you part of this definition, but one of the definitions of the word humility, it, it literally means to be low to the ground. So, so, so this is the ground, and humility means to be low to the ground. Actually, in extra biblical accounts, one of the things that, that we are told, um, they, they, they're describing the Nile River, and they said that the Nile River, there are certain parts of the Nile River that are humble, and not because the Nile River has emotions, but because it was low to the ground. And during the dry season, it would be low to the ground. So the, the word humility literally means to be low to the ground, okay? Now think about this, think about this. The passage says that the only way God can lift you up is if you're down. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says that, that it says um, uh, pride comes before the fall. But here's the thing about gravity. The only way you can fall is if you're elevated, right? If I'm already on the ground, I can't fall. See, when you're on the ground, the only way up is, the only way is up. When you're on, when you're up, the only way is down. So when I stand up, pride, there's only one way down. When I stay low, there's only one way up. That's what God is promising us here. That's why this command is just so, so important. And then he says that he may lift you up in due time. The phrase there, due time, it, it, it's, the, it's the Greek word kairos. And a few, maybe over a year ago, we were looking at Ephesians 5, and we talked about the difference between chronos and kairos. So there's two Greek words for time in the Bible. Chronos is, is measure time. So is where we get the word chronology or chronological. Chronos is like the time on the clock or the, the date on the calendar. It's time that can be measured. That's what chronos is, right? Here's what the, what, what the passage is telling us. That's not the type of time that God works in. God doesn't work in chronos. God works in kairos. And kairos, here's what kairos means. It means opportunity. It means a decisive God-appointed moment. So God says, if you humble yourself before me, I will lift you up at the kairos time, at the right time, at the appointed time that I decide. Not you, but that I decide. Here's the problem with waiting on God, though. God can wait a long time before he lifts you up. Okay? Okay? Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years before God elevated him. Joseph was in uh, Potiphar's house, then he was in jail before. So he was down, and then he went further down before God lifted him up. See, but if, if, if let's say you're at work and you want to go further up in the organization you're in, or, or, or anywhere in your life where you want to be moved up, when, when you get impatient and, and start to doubt God's time, it's actually an evidence of pride. Because what you're telling God is that you know the plan better than he does. That's what you're saying. 
That's what you're saying. Okay? So that's, so that's the second thing. So the first benefit of being humble is there's something God gives. He, he gives us favor. The second benefit uh, is that if, if we humble ourselves is that God uh, does something. He lifts us up in due time. And then the third benefit, and this is the one that probably most caught me off guard. I just didn't expect it, is that there's something God takes. Okay, so there's something God gives, there's something God does, and the last benefit is there's something God takes. Look at verse 7. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So, so, so the third benefit of being humble is that you don't have to carry your anxiety. You don't have to carry your cares. The word there, cast, it literally means to throw something to someone else. That's what the word there, cast, means. It means to place something on someone else's shoulders. It, it can literally mean to make someone else responsible for something. That's what the word cast there means. So one of the ways that you grow in humility is by casting all your anxieties on God. And in, in the phrase there, all, it means all, right? Because here's what a lot of us do. A lot of us, we choose which anxieties we give God. So God, I can give you my job, but I can't give you my children. Hey God, I can give you my marriage, but I can't give you, you know, my money. Well, I can give you my money, but I can't give you my singleness. And, and, and we try to decide what we give God. God says, no, no, either you give me all of it or you give me none of it. Okay? Now here's what's really, this, this is really important. When I first read this passage and he brought up anxiety, it almost seemed like he was going off like on a, on a tangent. Like what does anxiety have to do with humility, Right? Like, why would he get distracted? But he's actually not getting distracted. He's actually cementing his point. Here's why. Here's what Peter is saying. See, when, when we think of, and here's how I've always done it. When I am counseling someone who's struggling with anxiety, which, by the way, the word anxiety means to be torn apart. It means literally to be strangled, to be choked out. That's what it means in Greek, the word anxiety, right? When I, when, up to this point in my ministry, when I meet with people who are struggling with anxiety, I always diagnose anxiety as a lack of faith. And it is, right? Anxiety is a lack of faith. But Peter here takes it a whole nother level. He says that anxiety is not just a lack of faith, it is the presence of pride. Anxiety is not just the lack of faith, it is the presence of pride. You are being prideful. And you're like, wait, 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 how is that being prideful? How is me being anxious being prideful? Well, here's why it's being prideful. Because when you are anxious, what that means is you're worried about things that only God should be worrying about. You see, here's the thing. <laughs> Let me put this. Everybody loves God's throne, but the problem is when you sit in God's throne, you also have to think God's thoughts. Okay? God's throne comes with his thoughts. And so when you take his spot, you got to think about the things he thinks about. That's when the anxiety comes on. Because as a creature, there's things you're thinking about that only the creator should be thinking about. Right? When you take God's crown, you, gotta, you also have to take upon yourself God's cares. So we love the throne and we love the crown, but we don't really like the thoughts or the cares. But that's why you're anxious. To the degree that you're anxious, to that same degree you're prideful. That's what Peter is telling us. Okay? All your anxiety on him. All your anxiety on him. That's what we are called to do. So, we've looked at, if you could go to my three points again. The call to humility. We've looked at the benefits of humility. And I want to conclude by looking at the motivation for humility. The motivation. And to do that, I want you to put verse 7 back up. This is really interesting. Look how, look how he ends this passage. I, I've read the first part of verse 7, but I haven't read 
the last part of verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Tell your neighbor, he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. So, 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 so listen, listen, listen. That, that seems like a throwaway statement. Like if you're reading through this passage, you actually wouldn't even realize that it's an important thing to camp out on. But it's actually essential if you are going to become humble. Here, here's why, here's why. The word there, cares, it doesn't just mean that God, you know, thinks about you every so often. The word there, cares, means that God is infatuated with you. It means that he has a high regard for you. It means that he is concerned for you. It means that he loves you the way a heavenly father cares for you and loves you. Now, here's why this is so important. Guys, guys, the reason why this is so important is because the reason why we struggle with pride, there's two reasons why we struggle with pride. The first reason why we are so prone to pride is because when we look out, every other person is struggling with pride too. So the reason why I only think about myself is because everyone else is thinking about themselves, right? But the second reason why we only think about ourselves is because no one else is thinking about us, right? Since everyone is so focused thinking about themselves, then what I have to do is I have to think about me too because if I don't think about me, no one else is thinking about me. But here is why this verse is so important. Here's why knowing that God cares for you kills pride at its root. Here's why it produces humility like nothing else because once I understand that God cares for me, that God loves me, that God died for me, that God has considered me, once I understand that, now I don't have to worry about me anymore because God cares for me. Okay? So I can care about you now because God has cared about me. I can consider you now because God has considered me. I can love you now because God has loved me. Once I understand that God cares for me and that the God of the universe notices me, loves me, and has provided for me, once I understand that, it changes me. Now I can be humble. Now I can come to you with no strings attached. Now I can come to you and not have to think about myself because God has already thought about me. God has already loved me. God has already accepted me. God has already approved of me. So now I can serve you with no strings attached because I don't actually need you anymore because everything I have has already been given to me by God. That's what we've been given. That's why you need, that's why humility is only going to happen when you understand. I don't have to care about myself anymore, pride, because God has cared for me in a way that I can never have imagined and can never have asked. That's why that's so important. Now, some of you are asking, wait, 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 hold on, Will. How do I know that God actually cares, though? How do I know that God can care for me the way I care for myself? How can I be sure? Because when I look at this passage, I'm not really any of the things that he's telling me to do. So if the, re- if the only way that God's going to keep his promise is if I perform, then I'm in trouble because I'm not any of those things you just called me to be, right? How can I be absolutely sure that God is going to care for me if I am not the things that this passage describes? Well, here's why. Because this passage is not ultimately about you. This passage is describing someone else. There's someone else who did this. There's someone else who clothed themselves with humility. There's someone else who humbled themselves under God's mighty hand. There's someone else who casted all his anxieties on God. And that person's not you. That person's not me. That person is Jesus Christ. Jesus is that person. See, once, once you understand that, here's, why, here's how you know that God is going to care for you. I know that God is going to consider me because God did not consider him. I know God's going to care for me because God did not care for him. I know that God is going to lift me up because God crushed him. So listen, listen the reason why God, so Jesus, since he's the only person that lived this verse out, 
He deserved God's favor. He deserved to be lifted up. He deserved to be cared for. But instead, he got the exact opposite. And the question is why? Well, the reason why God did it to him is because he didn't want to do it to you. That's why. And once you understand that, once you get that, the reason why you can never doubt God's love is because God proved his love at the cross. So some of you are sitting here thinking, well, so, so if I'm not to boast in myself, what am I to boast in? Well, in light of this passage, according to Galatians 6 verse 14, we are to boast not in ourselves but in the cross of Christ. That's where my boasting has to be because if it's true that Jesus did everything I could not do, lived the life I could not live, died the death that I should have died, once I understand that, it changes everything. It changes everything. I am fully loved and fully accepted. Here, here's the thing. God knew that since sin entered because of Satan's pride, right? Sin entered the world because of Satan's pride. The only way sin would leave the world is through Jesus' humility. Okay? So think about this. If, if, if pride is man trying to become God, then humility is God becoming man. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. Once we understand that, once we let that change us, you see, here's the thing, that phrase mighty hand, the mighty hand of God, in the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God represented one of two things. It either represented God's discipline or God's deliverance. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus took God's mighty hand of discipline so that we might get God's mighty hand of deliverance. If you get that, if you understand that, if you meditate on that, if you, if you look at that and allow that to wash over you, humility is the only thing that can be produced. Once you understand that you have been cared for and loved and accepted, then and only then will you be able to care for and love and, and accept the people around you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so humility is this. Humility is not to think more of yourself. Humility is not to think less of yourself. Biblical, gospel-centered humility is to think of yourself less.